morning. Like I got some extra goodies up here. We'll go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Today's message is entitled, The Church Has Left the Building. If you've been with us, you know we've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts. It's the birth of the church. Jesus has already ascended up into heaven. The disciples have been filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the witnesses of Christ. We've seen the church exponentially begin to grow as more and more people there in Jerusalem are putting their faith in Jesus, no longer seeing him as, him as a rejected man, but seeing him as the Messiah, the Christ, and the Savior. The Pharisees and religious leaders, they are still trying to stop Christianity from spreading. If you remember that they, they arrested the disciples and they said, you need to stop this right now. We've taken care of Jesus and we can take care of you. So don't talk about him anymore. And they gave them a stern warning. But of course they responded, well, I appreciate your, your insight, but we have to obey God rather than man. And so they continued to teach the word there in the temple. And once again, the Pharisees and religious leaders, they arrested the disciples. And this time, they didn't just hit them with words, but they hit them with their fists. And they beat them. And they told them again, stop teaching about Jesus. No more. And they let him go. And once again, they said, we need to obey God rather than man. Well, last week, if you were with us in Acts chapter 7, we read about Stephen. Stephen, who was one of the deacons that was helping serve um, the people. And he was filled with the Spirit. And in chapter 7, we saw how he was given an opportunity to boldly proclaim Christ and teach to a great crowd that had gathered around him. And they had um, brought some charges against Stephen. False charges, trying to get him into trouble. But in Stephen's address, he didn't defend himself. He wasn't worried about taking care of his own name, but he took the opportunity to talk about the name of Christ. And so he proclaimed the gospel to the people. And he declared in chapter 7 of Acts, verse 51, he said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Stephen was showing that their biggest problem was that they refused to believe the testimony of the Holy Spirit. That was their issue, rejecting what God was doing in their heart so that they were left without God. And the crowd was enraged. It says they were cut to the heart, but they still were rejecting the Holy Spirit speaking to them. And so they put their hands over their ears and they rushed at Stephen and they stoned him to death. They put him to death. Because of his testimony. As Stephen dies, he cried out in a loud voice and he said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And so the early church has now reached a new level of persecution. It's not just verbal threats, it's not just arrest with beating, but it's now being put to death for teaching about Jesus. And now with that, we get into Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 and verses 1 through 4, we read how Saul persecutes the church. It says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, 
except the apostles. Now, Saul was mentioned last week. While the people were stoning Stephen, throwing stones at him until he died, Saul was there guarding the coats of the men who were putting Stephen to death. You see, Saul was consenting. He was supportive of putting Stephen to death, but he was above actually getting his hands dirty, so he was guarding the coats there. And this is the same Saul that would one day become the Apostle Paul. And so up until this time, if you look at the map, the church was right there in Jerusalem. They would meet at the temple, in the courts. They'd meet in the homes of the people there in the city of Jerusalem. But now with Stephen's death, much of the church flees Jerusalem. And they spread throughout Judea and Samaria. Those are the regions around that area. And so verse 2, it says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. We're reminded of what Jesus warned his disciples. Back in John chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Saul believed he was serving God by putting Stephen to death, getting rid of these Christians and their false doctrine. And all these things are happening just like Jesus said they would. And God is even using this persecution and the suffering for his own purpose. Look at Acts 8 verse 4. It says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. You see, Saul and the religious leaders, they were trying to eradicate Christianity. And so they put Stephen to death and they raised the bar of what it means to be a Christian. But instead of stamping out Christianity, they caused it to spread. Remember what Jesus said back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, but you, talking to the disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, it was God's plan all along, not for the church to remain there in Jerusalem, but for the church the disciples to spread all across the Roman Empire and share who Jesus is. But up until now, the church was thriving in Jerusalem alone. They loved their house churches. They loved meeting in the temple. They loved the love feast that they would have. And yet God was going to take this persecution and use it. It's a reminder of, of what Joseph said to his brothers. Remember Joseph who was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And at the end of the story, he was in the second of command in Egypt, and God used Joseph to provide for his brothers and the family and give them food during the famine. Joseph said, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. If you want to take notes today, your first fill in the blank God can take what the enemy meant for evil and use it for good. You might say, that sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, we sing it. It's in a worship song. And it's a great truth. 
God can take what the enemy is trying to use for evil and he can turn it around and God can use that for his own purpose, for his own glory, to expand his kingdom and use it for good. The ultimate example of this is, of course, Jesus on the cross. As Satan empowered Judas to take a disciple of Jesus and turn him against Jesus, to betray him and hand Jesus over to the scribes and Pharisees in the dark where the crowds aren't aren't there and they could arrest him. And they took Jesus and they beat him and they mocked him and they crucified him on a cross. And Satan says, yes, I did it. And God says, I did it. You see, Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose again. And because of that, Jesus conquered death. He conquered the grave and he defeated sin on the cross. And so God takes what the enemy tries to do, tries to work for his own plans, and God flips it around and God says, I can work with that. I can use that. And he does. And so now, because of Stephen's death, the gospel is being pushed out of Jerusalem and begins to spread. No longer do people have to come to the temple in Jerusalem to hear about Jesus and meet the disciples. The gospel is coming to them. The church transitions from a come and see ministry to a go and tell ministry. And it's important that we, the church, have both, right? When people come to us, the church, we want to share Jesus. Tell them who He is and what He has done in our life and what He can do for them in their life. But we don't want to only be a come and see church. We want to be a go and tell church. We, want to, we don't want to wait for them to come to us, but we want to go to them and bring Christ to them. And so, let's be that church. Looking for ways to bring Christ to our neighbors, to our family, to our friends, to our coworkers. Looking for opportunities to love them in the name of Jesus. We're going to see a great example of what that looks like next week as we look at the last section of Acts chapter 8 as Philip goes out to the desert, but that's for next week. Now in verses 5 through 13, we read how the gospel is even for Samaritans. Look at verse 5. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ to them. Now I want to stop and pause here for a moment because this has a lot more meaning to it than just the words on the paper there. Remember, the Samaritans were different from the Jews. Basically, the Samaritans descended from a mixture of Israelite and Canaanite, non-Israelite blood. The Jews considered the Samaritans to have dirty blood. The Samaritans believed in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, but that was it. And with that, they added in a lot of idolatry and junk from the Canaanites around them. And so they were kind of messed up in their theology, and the Jews were quick to point that out. And they said, you're not part of us. You're different. In fact, when Jesus went to Samaria and he spoke to the woman at the well, we read in John chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Then the woman of Samaria said to Jesus, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And yet Jesus broke through that barrier. And Philip follows in Jesus' footsteps, taking the gospel to Samaria. This reminds us that God's love and salvation is for all people. 
God's love and salvation is for all people. Everyone. Nobody's excluded. All people, no matter their nationality or their skin color or their sins, it doesn't matter. God loves them. He died for them. And He wants them to be His. Chuck Smith tells the story of his wife looking out their living room window and watching these barefoot hippies walking around the neighborhood. And when so many of the Christians of that day would turn up their nose at these barefoot, free-loving druggies, Chuck Smith's wife had a broken heart for them. And she would watch them and she would, she would just mourn as she watched them and she'd, she'd cry out to Chuck and say, Oh, Chuck, they need Jesus. And Chuck would say, Oh, and he would just, okay, you know, oh, my wife, she's, she's got a big heart. Well, with, with her encouragement, Chuck began to share Christ with these hippies, share with them who Jesus is and that he has paid for their sin. He's given them eternal life, and all they have to do is surrender their life to him, trust in him, and they'll be saved, and God would give them a brand new life. And so, so thousands of these hippies, they gave up their version of free love and they took the free love of Christ and they found a new life in Him. And the Jesus movement began and God did amazing things through Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel and many others who would simply allow these crazy barefoot weirdos to come into church and they wouldn't even make them put shoes on. Can you believe that? You see, sometimes God's love reaches farther than we expect. That's what happened in the 70s. And that's what's happening here with the Samaritans. But I want us to think today, what does that look like for us? Who are the Samaritans in your life? Who is it that their posts on social media, man, they they rub you the most. They bother you the most. Maybe those are the Samaritans in your life, the people who you struggle to accept, and yet God wants to give you His heart for them. God wants to give you His love to pass on to them. It doesn't mean you agree with everything about them, but it does mean you recognize that Jesus and the gospel is what's most important above everything else. And so let's be like that. Letting God's love flow through us to even the people who we don't get along with or the people who we don't naturally fit in with. Jesus says, I still can use you if you're willing to be a vessel of my love and gospel. That's what Philip was willing to do here. And so in verse 5 again, the Samaritans were rejected by Israel, but they weren't rejected by God. Verse 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. As Philip preached the gospel, God confirmed his power through Philip, through these miracles, And multitudes of these Samaritans, the outcasts of the Jews, they found mercy and grace in Jesus. Now look at verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, 
who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished all the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. Now remember, these Samaritans, their understanding was a little iffy. They only had the first five books of the Bible, and they had brought in idolatry and and other stuff from the regions around them. And so when they saw Simon the sorcerer, they saw his tricks and his power. They didn't know any better. And they said, man, this guy is the power of God. Simon the sorcerer, he's amazing. Now, sorcery involves casting spells or fortune telling or talking to spirits. And it often includes taking mind-altering drugs. Now, a lot of sorcery is deceit and tricks. But sometimes there can be real supernatural power. Paul tells us of the coming Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. And he says, The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. This reminds us that Satan has real supernatural power, but he's still no match for God. Satan has real supernatural power, but he's still no match for God. Satan's like a dog on a leash. He might bite, but he's limited. And his end is already written down. He's already been defeated on the cross. As for Simon the sorcerer, we don't know if he was a great deceiver with great tricks or if he had real demonic power. But either way, he had the people convinced and they believed that he had the power of God. And so, verse 11, it says, They, the people, heeded him, because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. They turned away from following after this Simon the sorcerer and his dazzling tricks, and they gave their lives to Jesus. Then, verse 13, it says, Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. The fact that Simon was amazed at the miracles that Philip was performing by the power of the Holy Spirit, it might imply that Simon was used to fake tricks, tricking people, not real power. And now he's seeing real power and he's amazed by it. Or perhaps Simon does, did have some demonic power, but when he saw the power of God healing and restoring people, he saw that power is far superior to my demonic power that can only maim and hurt and deceive. And so Simon the sorcerer, he believes And he was baptized. But as we'll see, it's not too clear if his faith was genuine or not. Look at verses 14 through 17 now, where we read, The Spirit falls in Samaria. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, 
They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Why? Why did the Holy Spirit not come upon the Samaritans until Peter and John laid hands on them? Well, I think it's important that we remember that there are three relationships we can have with the Holy Spirit. With, in, or upon. With, in, or upon. You see, before we are saved, the Holy Spirit is with us, alongside us. And the Holy Spirit is convicting us of our sin, showing us our need to get right with Christ, showing us our need to put our faith in Jesus. The moment we do that, the moment we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, sealing us as His own, sealing us as believers. And this is where the disciples were at in Acts chapter 1. They were already believers. Jesus had already breathed on the disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20. And yet here in Acts chapter 1, they have the Holy Spirit in them. And yet again in Acts 1.8, we read how Jesus said to them, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You see, at that moment in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, giving them power to be witnesses for Jesus. That's that third relationship, the Holy Spirit upon. And that is what the Holy Spirit does whenever we ask Him to give us the power we need to live for Him. And so as the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon them, overflowing them. That's when they began to speak in tongues, worshiping God. That's when Peter stood up and preached boldly to the crowd of who Jesus is and how they had rejected Him and crucified the Messiah. And 3,000 of them got saved. Sometimes in Scripture, the Holy Spirit falls upon people the moment they're saved. They believe in Christ and right away they have that Holy Spirit power flowing through them. Other times, like here in Acts 8, the Holy Spirit falls upon them sometime after they're saved. And still other times, like in Acts chapter 4, we see the apostles get filled with the Holy Spirit again. All of this just reminds us that we need to recognize our need for God's power. We need to recognize our need for God's power. You see, Jesus asks a lot of us. He asks us to turn away from our sin, to live for Him, and to be His witness to others. That's a high calling. But Jesus doesn't command us and call us to do that without empowering us to do so. Seek the Lord. Ask Him to fill you afresh with His Holy Spirit, to empower you to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the hands and the feet of Jesus to those around you. And He will. He will give you that power. So here in Acts 8, Philip shares the gospel with the Samaritans. And they believe. And they're baptized. They're saved. And yet, they don't have the Holy Spirit upon them yet. The Holy Spirit's only in them. Until Peter and John come. They come up from Jerusalem. They go up to Samaria. And remember the animosity between Jews and Samaritans. It would have been tempting for the church in Jerusalem to hear 
Oh, Philip, you went and shared Jesus with the Samaritans? And they got saved and baptized? Well, that's great, but that's the Samaritan church. We're the Jerusalem church, right? Good for them, but stay away. Dirty blood. Don't touch. And yet, because God worked it out this way, because God did not pour out His Spirit upon the Samaritans until Peter and John went up to lay hands on and pray for them, God was connecting the churches and saying, there's no difference. You're all mine. You're all one church. And that's an amazing thing. There's a lot of diversity among believers here in even America. That's okay, as long as we recognize we're all one church. If you think about all of the believers around the world, you think about the different ways they worship, the different ways they serve the Lord. We focus on the main thing, and the main thing is Jesus. Do they believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus died on the cross for their sin, that he rose again, and that trusting in Jesus is the only way to go to heaven, not by works, but by faith? And that's called a believer. And God says, they're mine, just like you are mine. Don't treat them different. We're all one church. We remember how Jesus even told Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. He told Peter, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Kind of an interesting phrase. And yet, we recall how Peter was there when the Spirit fell upon the Jews on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter was here in Acts chapter 8 as the Spirit falls upon the Samaritans and empowers them. And we're also going to read later in Acts chapter 10 when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius and he shares the gospel with Gentiles. They're not even part Jew. There's no Jew in them. And God's going to save even them? And as Peter shares the gospel with these crazy Gentiles, even while he's speaking, they begin to speak in tongues and to worship God. And Peter's amazed and he says, God has even poured out His Spirit upon the Gentiles. Now why should we withhold water baptism? They've already been filled with the Spirit. And so they baptize them. And Peter was there for each of those key moments. Because Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. And God used him to open up the gospel to these different groups of people. Now in verses 18 through 25, we read about lessons from Simon the sorcerer. Verse 18, it says, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit fell upon the Samaritans, something visible happened, right? Because Simon the sorcerer, he's watching it and he sees, wow, they're speaking in tongues, or wow, they're prophesying, or wow, they're just overflowing with the love of Christ. I want that power to lay hands on people and baptize them in the Holy Spirit. And so he sees it and he says, I want that. That's a neat trick. Can I buy that from you? Verse 20. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. 
You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Because of these verses, we have reason to doubt the genuineness of Simon the sorcerer's faith. Now, I do want to confess, the Bible's not clear either way. But I want us to take some time to look a little closer at these verses and see what we can learn from this Simon the sorcerer. First of all, remember that Simon believed and was baptized as a result of the miracles that he saw. He saw the power of God flowing through Philip, and that is why he believed. Faith based on miracles is a poor foundation. We read in John chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, it says, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover... During the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus did not accept the crowds believing in him because of the signs they saw, because their faith was based on just that, the signs and the miracles. The problem with basing your faith on signs and miracles is if the signs and miracles don't continue, your faith is going to falter. The first time we have an unmet expectation where we expect God to come through and to heal or to do an amazing thing and He doesn't, our faith, it hits a solid wall and we're confused. Our faith crumbles. Your next fill in the blank Our faith should be based on the Word of God rather than signs and wonders. Base your faith on the Word of God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. When the Word of God is the foundation of our faith, nothing can shake it because God's Word never fails. It will never pass away. God's Word is forever. Now remember, Peter told Simon, In Acts chapter 8, verse 21, he said, Simon, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. We're told that Simon believed, he was baptized, he even followed Philip, all great things, and yet Peter declares that Simon's heart was not right in God's eyes. God wasn't impressed by Simon's actions because God looked at his heart, and he said, something's not right there. You're not really surrendered to me. Therefore, we are reminded that we tend to focus on outward appearances, but God cares about the heart. We tend to focus on our own outward appearance, or we judge others by looking at their outward appearance, and we forget God cares about the heart. God taught so boldly on the Sermon on the Mount. 
where Jesus proclaimed so many things like, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you hate someone, you've committed murder in your heart. What? But I've never killed anybody. I'm not Hitler. And Jesus says, thank you. But if you've hated somebody, you're still guilty. That's shocking. Because I like to see myself as doing pretty well. Because although I've murdered many people in my heart, I haven't murdered anybody in real life. Right? You see, God cares about our heart. And God knows that if our heart is surrendered to Him, the outside will get taken care of. God purifies our hearts. And He begins that work from the inside out. And the outside will change. But the Pharisees... Man, they looked good on the outside. And God said, on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You're evil. You're wicked. And so too with Simon the sorcerer here. We're reminded that God cares about that outward appearance. But God, man cares about the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It's a good time to pause and inspect our own heart and to ask between me and the Lord, say, Am I doing the right thing, but with the wrong heart? Or to ask, am I just going through the motions, but I've, I've lost that hunger and desire and focus on God? Can I just be real with you that I need to ask myself that question frequently? Because I'm a sinner. And so we should stop and say, Lord, help me to be surrendered to you in my heart. Not just in my actions, not just in what I say and what other people see me do, but God in my heart, help me to be full of you and your love because it's an easy trap to fall into. Simon's heart was displeasing to God. So what was it? What was it that was in Simon the sorcerer's heart? Well, Peter told us in Acts chapter 8, verse 23, Peter said, For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Bitterness is when we hold on to our hurt. Somebody sins against us or they offend us, and whether they know it or not, we can become bitter. It's the opposite of forgiveness. The people used to call Simon the sorcerer the power of God, but now they're all following the apostles and Jesus. Simon's bitter. Perhaps he's jealous of what the apostles have. Notice bitterness here is described as a poison. It seeps into every area of Simon the sorcerer's heart. It affects everything, every thought in his head. Everything that he hears others say is poisoned by that bitterness. Bitterness steals our joy. It keeps our focus on self. And it imprisons us in our own pain. Bitterness refuses to believe, Romans 8.28, where it says God works all things together for good. Bitterness says, no, not this. It doesn't work this out for good. It can't. Jesus went to the cross to forgive the sins of the world. But bitterness says it wasn't enough to forgive their sin. They hurt me too much. As we look at this and we, we put ourselves in the shoes of Simon the sorcerer, we need to ask, is there someone that we need to 
forgive today. Our next fill in the blank that says bitterness says there is a price to be paid. They need to make it right. Bitterness says there's a price to be paid, but forgiveness recognizes it was paid in full on the cross. Jesus already paid for it on the cross. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You see, we can forgive others because Jesus forgave us. And sometimes that means forgiving others even when they don't apologize, even when they don't admit their fault. Because praise the Lord, Jesus paid for all of our sin, even the sins that we forgot to pray about. Even the sin that we don't even recognize we're doing yet. Jesus says, I paid for it in full. Peter saw the errors of Simon. And he called him to repent. Acts 8.22, he said, Repent therefore of this your wickedness. And pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. But look at Simon the sorcerer's response in verse 24. It says, Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me. The Bible doesn't tell us if Simon prayed himself or repented himself. All we know is that he asked Peter to pray for him. He's passing the buck. He doesn't want to do it himself. Now, remember, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was that veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies. That veil was that thick curtain so that when the priests went in each day into the temple to put fresh bread or to to fill the oil in the lamps, there was that veil that separated them from where God would meet them. That veil was all about, don't come too close, because God is holy and you are not. Don't get too close. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, you remember the veil was torn from top to bottom. The veil was torn in two signifying that Jesus has opened up access to God for all people. His blood allows us to come to God directly. This is a wonderful thing, but it also means that we can't send somebody else to God on our behalf. Peter could not repent on behalf of Simon. Simon had to do his own repenting. You see, in my relationship with God, the buck stops with me. A personal relationship with God is both a privilege and a responsibility. It's a privilege and a responsibility. A privilege because you have access to God, the Creator. A responsibility because I can't go there for you. If my wife reads her Bible, I can't say, well, we're good for the day. I don't need to read my Bible now. It doesn't work that way. Right? Because it's the personal relationship that God wants with each of us. And so, it's okay to ask others for prayer, but make sure you're going to the Lord yourself. Otherwise, you'll be just like Simon the sorcerer, knowing Christians, but not knowing Christ. 
Finally, look again at Simon's request for prayer. In Acts 8, verse 24, it says again, Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Pray for me that none of those bad things happen to me. Notice that Simon wasn't concerned about his sin, but he was concerned about the consequences. Peter said, Simon, repent of your bitterness. Repent of trying to purchase God's gifts. Repent so that you don't end up in hell. And Simon says, ooh, pray for me that that doesn't happen. No, you're missing the point. It reminds us of King Saul. King Saul, you see, there was a wicked people called the Amalekites. They were doing some terrible things, and God waited for hundreds of years before finally bringing judgment upon them. And so he told King Saul, king of Israel, Saul, I want you to go down, I want you to destroy the Amalekites. Their time has come, my patience is over. I want you to destroy them completely, and even their animals, destroy them all. Don't take anything for yourself. And so Saul, he gathers the forces of Israel and they go and they destroy the Amalekites. But they kept the best of the sheep and the oxen alive. And they spared them. And so God sends the prophet Samuel to go and talk to King Saul. And as Samuel's walking up there, Saul, the king, he sees Samuel. And he says, oh, Samuel, blessed are you of the Lord. I have fulfilled the commandment of God. I did it. And Samuel says, really? Well, what are, what are the sheep doing here? What are the oxen doing here? I thought you were supposed to kill all of those. And King Saul says, oh, well, the people, you know, those Israelites, they wanted to spare the best of the sheep and the oxen. They kept them because they were healthy and they're worth a lot of money. And by the way, we're going we're gonna to burn them all as an offering to the Lord. So really, it's more spiritual that we're doing it this way, and it's better this way. And it was the people, not me, the king, because it's not like I have authority or anything. And so, Samuel the prophet, he says, no, you didn't obey. God gave you a command, and you didn't listen. And King Saul says, no, but did I tell you that it was the people that kept the sheep and the oxen? And we're going to offer it all to your God. It's going to be okay. And Samuel the prophet, he said, the Lord is going to take the kingdom away from you. He's going to remove you from the throne of Israel. And he's going to put somebody else on the throne instead. And all of a sudden, King Saul says, I have sinned. Forgive me. It was too late because King Saul only cared about the consequences of his sin. He didn't want to get caught, but he didn't care about his relationship with the Lord. And that's the idea that we have here with Simon the sorcerer. He says, oh, would you pray for me? Because I don't want to go to hell. and I don't want to have to deal with those consequences, but don't tell me to fix my bitterness. Don't, don't tell me to stop buying the things that I want to buy. Don't change my life. Just pray that God will be okay with me. But that's not how God works. Your next fill in the blank. Genuine faith seeks to avoid sinning. Phony faith seeks to avoid getting caught. 
Genuine faith seeks to avoid sinning, but phony faith seeks to avoid getting caught. Simon the sorcerer believed. He was baptized. He even followed Philip. Yet the genuineness of his faith seems shaky at best. I certainly don't want my life to be described as Simon the sorcerer's life is described. We close with this verse in James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. His point is, just because you believe in your head that Jesus is God and that He rose again, that's good. But even the demons believe that's truth, but they still live in rebellion against Him. And so for you and me, you see, salvation doesn't come by believing the facts up here. Salvation comes by trusting in the facts down here. Believe in your heart. Surrender your heart to Him. Can you relate to Simon the sorcerer? Can you relate to his faith? Good news. Repent. Jesus paid for our sin and full on the cross. If we find ourselves going through the motions, our heart's not really in it, turn back to the Lord. If we find ourselves distracted with worldly things, missing out on what God's calling us to do, repent. Turn back to the Lord. If you find yourself caring more about the consequences of sin instead of sin itself, repent. Turn back to the Lord. Here's the good news. Jesus is waiting there with open arms for us. Maybe you're there and you need to take that step today and say, Lord, I need to come back to you or come to you for the first time and surrender to you. And he will take you where you're at. Maybe we'll be there tomorrow when we blow it and we give into our flesh and we sin and we say, Lord, Would you take me back again and again and again? And he will, because he loves you. He paid for us on the cross. He's purchased us with his blood. As the worship team comes forward, let's close in prayer. God, we're so thankful that you love us with an unfailing love. A love that no sin is too great for your love to overcome. God, we're so grateful that your love is so great that there is no people group in this world that your grace is not for. There is no type of sinner that your love is not for. And Lord, we are here today grateful that you receive us because of your goodness instead of our own. Lord, if there's anybody here today that needs to surrender their life to you, whether for their first time or just come back to you and say, Lord, I've been living like Simon the sorcerer. I've been distracted. I've been doing things my own way. If that's you, then as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, just pray this with me. Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? 
Would you take my life and use me for your name? God, would you fill me with your spirit? Make me yours and use me for your glory. And Lord, that's our prayer as your church. God, would you give us eyes to realize that every single person we see, even the ones we don't get along with as well, Lord, you love them. Lord, would your Holy Spirit flow through us to show your love, to share your gospel with them. Lord, would you help us to be your church? Lord, thank you that you're coming back one day. Thank you that the end is already written down. Lord, you are victorious. We will stand with you face to face in heaven. God, we look forward to that time. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. Amen. If you have something we can pray for you about, we'd love to pray for you. There'll be folks up front that can pray with you. Um, encourage you to stick around and hang out for our celebration and food and games. So after service, um, we're going to set up tables and chairs in the back and, and get to it. Um, if you need to go, God bless you. We love you. Have a great week. Um, otherwise, turn around and say hi to somebody else that's part of the church and then get ready for some good food. Have a great week.